Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels, and our guest this week, we have Gord Pizer on the show for the first time. I think so many of you are going to know Gord uh, just from his long, long, long time in the industry. He's, uh, he's a Canadian. He's an Ontario native. And Gord's been in the industry a long time, like I said, and he's had his hands on all kinds of content. His his, his writing exploits, he's, he's hosted lots of TV shows. Um, you know, He's just been highlighted uh, in a lot of different places. You can find all kinds of good stuff on YouTube. But that being said, to have Gord on and get to know him a little bit and learn kind of his background in fishing is a lot of fun. And just hearing some really great stories that that always always entertains us for sure, especially with somebody that uh, is as high profile in the industry as Gord. But that being said, this conversation is going to revolve around one of the most uh, hottest topics in walleye fishing here in the Midwest, uh, as far as you know the the recommendations and and the write-ins that come in to me here for this show. We get a lot of questions. Talking about pelagic bait fish, you know, the forage bases that we have in some of these bigger reservoirs, especially out west. You talk about, uh, we're going to talk a lot about Canadian fishing. Uh, you know, this is going to touch on people in the Great Lakes. In fact, it doesn't really matter where you're from. This conversation is very relatable because it's going to be kind of science based. We're going to be talking a lot about, you know, Gord's area of, uh, of expertise, you know, Cisco's and how big fish operate with a forage base like a Cisco. Uh, but that being said, as we talk about briefly in the show, as it goes on, uh, you know, we're talking Cisco's in this conversation and sort of detailing what we need to know to, to become smarter and more effective anglers on bodies of water that have Cisco's. But this is transferable to, you know, any body of water that has a pelagic bait fish forage base. You know, that could be you know any of the smelt species or it could be a shad deal, you know, you know the Cisco's also known as a lake herring or or tulipy. I mean, those are the same fish. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we call them Cisco's a lot in this show. But anyways, yeah, just a, just a fantastic conversation. I feel like it. Uh, I try to make it as balanced as possible, where we're we're sharing as much information, you know, sort of on the fishing side of things and what we need to know as anglers, but also really, you know. The, the heart of it, the, the focus is, you know, what we know as fact, sort of the sciencey side of things uh, as we break down, you know, a forage base like a Cisco and what that means for us to find and catch a big fish that we probably didn't know were there before or, or are doing a thing that we haven't been targeting to this point. And I think that there's a lot of lakes where walleyes are doing this or something a lot like this that we all ought to be checking out because it is definitely a big fish deal uh, when you wrap this all up in a package. So we're talking Cisco's and big walleyes with Gord Pizer on this JMO podcast. Let's get into the interview. This episode of the JMO podcast is brought to you by the North Dakota Game and Fish Department. In the 2023 fishing season, the state of North Dakota is putting on the 2023 Sport Fish Challenge. Now, the process is simple. You're going to catch a variety of fish, take pictures of them, submit those pictures. If you do it all over the course of the season, you're going to win some cool prizes. For full challenge details, head to the link that is in the description of this podcast. That's gf.nd.gov backslash fish hyphen challenge. Now, let's get into the interview. Um, I want to get to know you a little bit, and I really like my listeners to hear you know, the origin story of our guests, you know, I want to kind of know or maybe have you retell the story about, um, you know, where were you sort of born and raised or, or, or introduced to fishing and, and where did your passion for, you know, the, the, you know, fishing, even before the fishing industry, uh, uh, where did that really start for you? And then kind of bring us up to speed to where you're at today, man, go ahead. Sure. No, I, I, uh, <coughs> Excuse me, I was born in Toronto, so uh, southern Ontario, uh, down on the Great Lakes. And uh, this is, I've, I've, I've said this many times, and it's kind of comical, but, you know, like most of us, my dad was an angler. Um, he had come back, he was with the RCAF over in Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War, and he was a, 
a navigator, wireless air gunner on Hercules uh, bombers over the English Channel. And I got born just after the war. And, uh, you know, he was an avid angler. And uh, so even when I was uh, three, four, five years old, my brother and I, like most folks listening to this, our dad, you know, we, we went fishing with our dads and, and, you know, he rented, uh, we'd go up to the Kawartha lakes north of the city and he'd rent a boat for the day and we'd fish for walleyes and bass, whatever. And I, I can honestly remember when I was maybe four or five years old, uh, sitting on the gutter <laughs> in front of our house in a heavy rainstorm with a stick in my hand and a piece of string on the end. And I was hoping, I was confident I was going to get a bite in the water that was rolling down the street. All right. So, you know, uh, I, I was lucky, I guess, too. Um, you know, my folks, uh, they, they bought a cottage uh, about uh, two and a half hours north of Toronto, up in the Halliburton Highlands when I was in elementary school. And so, shoot, from the time I was in, a, you know, probably 10 years old to 20 years old, maybe even a bit younger than that, maybe eight, nine years old till I was 19, um, I'd, we'd go to the cottage. There was never a weekend that we weren't up there. And in the summer months, uh, we'd go up, uh, my mom and brother and sister and I, we'd go up as uh, soon as school, the day school ended, and we didn't come back to the city until the day before school started up again. And um, I actually went six years in the summer, so six entire years in the summer, and I fished every day for six years in the summer. You know, you were, it's almost like you were, uh, it was just just in your DNA, just, uh, uh, you know, from the womb. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it truly was, Taylor. And and the other kind of neat thing is uh, um, I then, so when I went to university, uh, I took uh, uh, fish and wildlife uh, as part of my core curriculum. And, and then uh, I actually did my master's thesis in Algonquin Park, a huge wilderness provincial park in central Ontario. And even more lucky, uh, I, I went on working with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. And so I, my, my formal uh, work career, uh, I was with uh, Natural Resources here in Ontario for 31 years. And, you know, I, I, one of my positions that when I finished up was uh, a district manager of MNR here in Kenora. And we got we have three and a half thousand lakes in the district, one of them being Lake of the Woods, and uh, you know we stretch over to Eagle and and so I grew up. Uh, I was fortunate in my work career. Uh, I had the biologist working for me, and and at another stage uh, I was in the policy section in Thunder Bay and. That happened to be where our walleye research section was. So I chummed around and, and knew very well Dr. Peter Colby. Peter, Peter's a dear, dear friend. And Peter literally wrote the book on, on walleyes. He wrote the, the uh, synthesis of, for walleye uh, for the United Nations. And, and uh, John Castleman, Dr. Castleman, probably the world's uh, foremost authority on the sockets, northern pike and muskies. And John's a dear friend. So, you know, when you rub shoulders with those guys on a daily basis, uh, a little bit of knowledge has to rub off. Oh, my gosh. They 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 must have you know, wisdom and, and fishing information just falling out of their pockets everywhere they go. Taylor, it's it's truly, truly. Now, <clears throat> I, I've said this many, many times that they're absolutely brilliant. And and one of the things that and I always uh, mention this about John, Dr. Castleman, John did the um, the Clythrum project with uh, Ed Crossman from the Royal Ontario Museum. And that was 20 years of collecting musky research 
uh, from taxidermists. So they got the uh, clythrums, they aged them, they were able to see different growth characteristics. And another good friend of mine, dear, dear friend, um, uh, Mark Ridgway, Dr. Ridgway, Mark headed up the uh, Harkness Research Lab in Algonquin Park. And that is the longest continuous census of an animal population on Earth uh, uh, following smallmouth bass since 1903-1905. And what we did here on Lake of the Woods, uh, out of interest, is we replicated Mark's work. So we tagged smallmouth bass in Lake of the Woods and largemouth as well. And we actually tracked them on a daily basis for three to five years. And what we saw, what we discovered, what we learned, uh, honest truth, it will blow your mind. Uh, and this is, this is of interest, I think, is, you know, when I'm out fishing with folks, um, one of the most common, we'll catch a nice walleye or a big pike or a large lake trout and you know that the folks are going to say, how old do you think that fish is? Yeah. And, and you'll tell them and they'll go, it might be a lake trout and you go, you know, it could be 40, 42 years old and we'll catch a bass and, or a walleye. And you'll say, wow, they'll say, oh, it's a, a big, isn't he big? And you'll go, no, she is big. And they'll go, how do you know that's a, a female? And it's interesting from an angler perspective that, um, and I've seen this in my writing career over 40 years now, 45 years, is anglers thirst for the science they can transfer over to their fishing. Absolutely. And I, I do the same thing when I'm talking with, uh, with uh, Peter Colby, for example. Anglers don't realize, walleye anglers don't realize that walleyes are probably the epitome of a fish that loves a bigger bait. And most walleye anglers do not throw baits big enough to attract walleye. In fact, Taylor, uh, most walleye anglers are specifically targeting smaller fish because of the smaller baits that they throw. And, you know, when you hear Peter explain uh, and, and it kind of leads to our Cisco's. Yeah. Um, th they go out of their way. They go out of their way to find these large, soft-bodied, high-protein, easy-to-digest, no scales, no sticky dorsal fins. They go out of their way to find them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you said, that's going to be our gateway drug into the, you know, kind of the bigger conversation that we're going to have here. Um, but I think you're spot on. There's sort of like a, a, a tradition that's been passed down from, you know, some recent walleye fishing generations that, um, you know, it's finesse fishing, you know, small baits, you know, just, you know, just long, discreet leader line in clear water. And, you know, these walleyes are, you know, the, you got to fish them by the bottom. And, and, uh, you know, I think that there's been some science, you know, the scientific evidence, you know, there's, there's been the research that, that is, that has shown this stuff, but, on, you know, as of recently with, like this forward sonar, for example, or just, you know, just some more adventurous and, 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 uh, uh anglers and the more, uh, advancements in technology. Now, all of a sudden the proof is a little bit more in the pudding. And I think, I think generally speaking, you know, the, the, the average walleye angler of today is gaining more confidence in the fact that walleyes are moving a lot more. Uh, they, they can live in a lot of different environments uh, based on what they're looking for, uh, you know, to, to eat and uh, live and reproduce. And, and uh, you know, I get a lot of questions. This will kind of, I'm going to kind of get us into this because I want to cover plenty of ground. I want to have plenty of time to talk about this and we'll keep, you know, sharing stories, of course, but um, but that being said though, you know, this is going to be my segue. This might be the last time we hear my voice for a while, but, um, you know, I get a lot of questions, even since I started this podcast a few years back, um, we've got a few introduced populations, uh, 
uh, of Cisco specifically, like in the Missouri River system down here, uh, you know, like Fort Peck is, has been really impacted by it. Uh, there's a lot of Cisco over there and there's some, uh, you know, that's just a booming destination fishery for big fish of all the species that are living in there that are, that are, uh, uh, you know, feeding on the Cisco. And then you come through, there's not as many of them in Sakakawea. That's where we've got the, you know, the, the smelt, the rainbow smelt populations a little bit more so, but then you get down into Oahe and then that, you know, that, that population of Cisco kind of picks back up again, not to mention, obviously, you know, the native populations over in the, you know, the Great Lakes and North and the Canadian, you know, up in your country. But I get all these conversations, but recently you put out some really great content, uh, some, some, some great readers talking about where uh, uh, you gathered some information on Cisco's and just sort of just some great all around information on it, interesting information. And so that's really the only segue I got. I, I, I've got uh, I'm just handing over this topic of conversation of Cisco's over to you. But you've really kind of already laid down some of the groundwork yourself. It's a lot of, you know, regardless of the species, I think there's a lot of musky guys that are really in tune with this for sure. Big pike guys. Um, and the walleye crowd is really, really trying to figure figure this stuff out and what is interesting about it and what it means, you know, to the health of the, the, the ecosystem, but also as anglers, you know, how do we learn more about Cisco's to help us be uh, better anglers? Um, so, you know, that's really, you know, the umbrella, those are all my cards on the table for this conversation, man. But talk to me a little bit about that, you know, even introducing some of that, you know, the content that you just release and, and just, uh, you know, just the interesting information on this topic. Sure. Um, Taylor, if I said uh, on, uh, on the air here, I will buy everyone dinner tonight. Uh, dinner tonight is on me. Uh, so pick your, pick your favorite restaurant. You know, most folks are going to go out and say, well, if Pizer's buying, I'm ordering New York steak and lobster, uh, surf and turf. The reality, though, is if I don't buy you dinner tonight, what are you likely going to have? And it's macaroni and cheese or fast food from McDonald's or whatever. And what anglers tend to confuse is what's most abundant versus what's preferred. So if you're a walleye angler or doesn't matter what your favorite fish is, um, you, you know, they eat a ton of yellow perch, but yellow perch are not necessarily preferred. Yellow perch are the macaroni and cheese or the McDonald's takeout. Cisco's, wherever you go, what regardless of the fish, whether it's muskies, northerns, uh, smallmouth bass, probably even largemouth, though they don't get a chance to get out there to get them, but walleyes, everything. Um, Cisco's are the surf and turf. And so what, what, and this is particularly true of the bigger fish. So the bigger the fish is, um, it is going out for that preferred forage may not be the most abundant, but it is definitely preferred. Tell you a little story. Um, uh, Dr. Ridgway, Mark Ridgway is a dear, dear friend. And I, I talked earlier about the fact that Mark has done just some amazing smallmouth bass research. So smallmouth bass come in and they nest in the spring. And they, for all intents and purposes, do not eat for six weeks. So the whole time when they're mating, uh, the eggs get laid they, laid, they protect the nest and then the bass hatch, and they'll protect the fry. And so for about four to six weeks, that male smallmouth bass does not eat. Uh, it actually absorbs water through osmosis so that it still looks big, and it can look intimidating to ward off uh, uh, nest graders. But Here's the point. Uh, a yellow perch will come in and it'll ram the perch or a, uh, um, a crayfish comes in. It'll pick it up and it'll run it out of the nest. And so for four to six weeks, that male smallmouth will not eat. If you put a Cisco bait beside it, it will rush out and eat it. And it's almost as though it says, 
my God, I've, I just can't pass up a Cisco. I've got to eat it. And that's just how powerful the draw of Cisco's are. Um, and, and that's the way walleyes behave. That's the way Northern Pike. I'll, I'll tell you another little story about this and how you can use this uh, for your fishing. So I'm the fishing editor of Outdoor Canada magazine. And so I got the opportunity to go up to uh, Reindeer Lake in right on the border of Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So just to the north of you a little bit. <clears throat> and the lodge operator called an invitation to come up, do a story on the pike fishing. So this is northern pike. And uh, he said, when do you want to come? And usually the answer is we want to come in the spring. So myself and a photographer. And I said, nah, we'll come up the last week of August. And he goes, You're gonna, you want to come the last week of August? That's the toughest time of the year to catch big northern pike. I said, ah, humor me and let us come up the last week of August. So... We fly up, it's gorgeous weather, it's, you know, like 75 to 85 degrees, calm, sunny, and absolute worst conditions you could ever have for catching the biggest pike in the lake. Anyway, again, to make a long story short, so we're out fishing, and we actually had a guide that day, and the guide took us out, and I always remember about 11 o'clock in the morning, he said, Gord, uh, I believe that's the 70th Northern you've caught today. And I said, George, George, don't get mad, but mad at me, but we're not interested in numbers of pike. And I mean, these were nice fish, uh, like eight, nine, 10, 12 pound pike. Uh, but I said, George, we're not interested in those. I'd rather fish the entire day and catch uh, five, eight, ten, even shoot, uh, you know, yeah, say four or five. But if they're 20, 22, 24 pounders, that's what we're looking for. And he goes, geez, uh, big fish, eh? Hmm, summertime. And I said, again, humor me. Do you know where there is our weed beds close to the deepest water in the lake. And he goes, geez, I think I, I do. So up we pull up and we take off. And so we're now kind of exploring. And Reindeer Lake is huge. I mean, it's like 100 miles, 120 miles north-south, and it's about 40 miles wide, absolutely giant body of water. So we pull into the first bay and we start fishing and and I said, George, again, don't don't get mad at me, but we're back in shallow water. You got us back in four or five, and we're catching eight pounders, ten pounders, nice, but that's not what we're here for. And he goes, okay, tell me again, what specifically are you looking for? And I said, you take me to the deepest weeds, and they don't have to be big, the deepest weeds closest to the deepest water you can find and reindeer lake happens to be a lake trout lake and it's got phenomenal cisco population so we pull into this bay and he said i know there's a little uh, cabbage bed in here somewhere and he and he said but it's not very big it's only like the size of your dining room or your kitchen and we said, I said, absolutely perfect, because if I turned around, Taylor, and made a cast, I'd have been casting out into 40 feet. If I made a, went a little bit further, I'd be out into 80, 90, 100 feet of water. And here we are in this little bay and in maybe 10, 12, 14 feet, and we're looking for the one bed of cabbage that is closest to the deep water. And we're throwing... Uh, six, seven, eight-inch Williams Wobbler Spoons. Um, it's called New Wrinkle, half gold, half silver. And the Williams Spoons in Canada here are pretty famous because they're made with pure gold and jewelry-quality silver. So the reflective qualities are unbelievable. And I, we always take off the treble hook 
and we put a single hook on and then we dressed the single hook with about a four to five inch white twister tail. So you've got this silver gold eight inch spoon with a twister, white twister tail on a single hook coming through the water and it looks like a Cisco. So <clears throat> we said, where are the weeds? And he said, you know, I know they're here, but start casting around and see if you can get snagged on them. So we start casting and after about five, six casts, my buddy Mark says, oh, there I hit the weed and he snapped it off. It was the biggest northern landed at the lodge that year. I made maybe three casts and caught the second biggest northern landed at the lodge the entire year. And within the first half hour of fishing that weed bed, I think it was four of the top ten biggest fish caught at the lodge the entire year. And it just tells you everything you need to know oh, yeah. about how fish react to ciscos. Every opportunity that we have to go out on the water fishing is a chance to make a memory. It's a chance to learn and grow as an angler. Ultimately, these are our fishing adventures. Now, if you want to take your fishing adventures to the next level, in 2023, the state of North Dakota is putting on the 2023 Sport Fish Challenge. Now, the process to complete this challenge is simple. You catch a bluegill, a walleye, a bass, and a trout. Take pictures of each of those species and submit the entry to the North Dakota Game and Fish website. The link is in the description. Anglers that complete the challenge will receive a decal that they can proudly display, which obviously would look excellent on a cooler or a tackle box or a water bottle, anywhere that people can see it and you can brag about it. For full challenge details... Again, visit the link that is in the description of this podcast. That's gf.nd.gov backslash fish hyphen challenge. It's really impactful to hear you talk about that. Like, first of all, the analogy about, you know, what restaurant would you pick? Uh, you know, the, the preferred versus what's abundant. I think that is such a, a great way to describe that. But also, um, you know, like you said, this it's it's the it's the end of in it's almost like a cheat code, if you will. It's the one bait that almost any predator fish in the, in a water body like that that has ciscos, if they you know that they just can't resist even under even under the conditions where all else would fail. Uh, yeah, I'll give you another example, and this is uh, this is m most people never associate ciscos with uh, muskies. So Ken O'Brien, his 65-pound uh, musky record out of Georgian Bay, about three hours north of Toronto. Uh, so O'Brien catches the 65-pound. Some folks uh, contended as the, uh, the world record. Um, regardless, it was 65 pounds. And when the folks interviewed him right afterwards, uh, he said... Uh, I was just out fishing for whatever would bite. Uh, he wasn't a musky angler, didn't have musky gear. He didn't even have a leader on. Um, but so he was just out having a fun recreational day, catches uh, arguably the world record musky, and he's throwing a bait that looks exactly like a Cisco. And I mean, it was a white silver bodied foil, silver foil, simple uh, rapala minnow. And he was fortunate the muskie was so old, uh, it hardly had any teeth. So it clamped down on his cisco, or in this case, his rapala minnow. And um, I mean, a recreational angler who will tell you he is not skilled as an angler, catches the potential world record. And he's throwing, it's not a coincidence that he's throwing a bait that looks exactly like a Cisco in a Cisco in Lake Huron, Georgian Bay. I mean, it's, it's, it's natural that it happened. What does that mean about the fish pattern or how, how do we have to change our thinking when we're talking about, you know, the feeding pattern? Because, you know, as walleye anglers, most of us are structure oriented. We like to see fish on our electronics, you know, and as we troll, uh, you know, 
over the top of them with the boat and then we're dragging our leech or our creek chub or whatever over them you know we're finding them attached uh, to structure it's a lot harder to go find them over open water but i mean cisco are pelagic you know you know so they're out and about in the water um so like how does that work then how do we got to start thinking or changing how we think you know especially for the walleye guys as far as yeah. uh, you know, how 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 do we wrap our head around that? I mean, if we're seeing them on structure, uh, are they are they just resting until they go back out and chase down some Cisco, or like how does that all work? Uh, it's a great question, and I believe it or not, got asked the very same thing this morning by one of the editors at Outdoor Canada magazine. So, and I sent them a, a screenshot from my hummingbird, and. Here's the key, uh, truly is the key, Taylor. Um, they, you're absolutely right. They're a cool water uh, species, and they love, uh, uh, if you have a water, water thermometer, they love in around 14 degrees Celsius. So that's what, mid-50s, mid-50s Fahrenheit. So if you concentrate, here, here's something else even more evident. We all talk about the thermocline. So, you know, you'll go out and, you know, you turn your sonar on. If you turn it up just a little bit heavier on the gain or the power, you'll actually see the thermocline in the summertime. And all the thermocline does is separates the warm surface water from the cold water down below it. And so here's the thermocline. It's that band of water, usually in about 24, 25 down to about 35. So it's a, usually about a seven, eight, nine, ten 10-foot band of water that goes right through your lakes. And it's separating the warm water up on the surface from the cold down below. We, we call it the thermocline. And many of the folks I used to work with, the biologists, they call it the Cisco layer. So if you know how to find the thermocline, you know how to find Cisco's. Uh, walleyes, walleyes, muskies, northern pike, and smallmouth, they scoot down to the top of the thermocline and pick off the ciscos. Lake trout, whitefish, they come roaring up from the bottom and pick them off uh, going the opposite direction. And it's a shooting gallery. The thermocline is a shooting gallery and everything is being attracted to it to eat the ciscos. So, you turn on your sonar, you're fishing Lake Oahe or Sacagawea or sorry, whatever your local lake there was. And the key is, um, if you know where the thermocline is, look for where it comes close to your structure. So let's say the top of the thermocline is 22 feet down. Look for shoals, look for underwater points where it connects at about 22 feet. And the, the image, I have some uh, hummingbird images that I shot on my helix, and I sent them to Outdoor Canada this morning when they asked that very same question. And honest truth, Taylor, there's probably four or five walleyes in that six to eight pound range, and they're the typical arc sitting on the, on the reef at 27 feet, and out in the open water, 200 feet away, are the Cisco's right in the top of the thermocline. And you know all that happens. Two things can happen. Either those Cisco's come a little bit too close, or the walleyes just scoot off and intercept them. But it's opportunity waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you feel like... You know, we talk about bite windows and, and um, you know, the, those those feeding windows and when that happens, right? Like, especially in open water, you know, most walleye anglers, we really like the low light periods or a nice overcast day with a little walleye chop, you know, or whatever. And it just, it just feels fishy, you know, sometimes at that certain time of the day. But that being said, does that change? Do we have to change how we think about that sometimes as far as this whole like Cisco predator fish dynamic? You know, is it are they just sort of opportunistic? So when the when the time arises or would you still say that you can kind of abide by some rules as far as like feeding windows or bite windows? 
Well, great question because they they certainly are temperature conscious. Uh, they don't want to leave uh, that you know mid fifties, probably fifty four to about fifty nine degrees Fahrenheit. They want to be in that water. But the thing is, at lower light periods, um, it, 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 at lower light periods, and we should talk about also about things like the mayfly hatch. Uh, once the mayflies start hatching, and they, they, of course, come up off the bottom, it's like it's raining from the bottom of the lake up to the surface. So it, it's not raining from the surface down. It's raining from the bottom up. And all they are are mayflies hatching, and mayflies. And the, I'm sure you you've experienced the mayfly hatch on your reservoirs. Oh yeah. And m- most people say, "Oh man, once the mayflies start hatching, the walleye bite really gets tough." We say it's the best walleye bite of the entire year. And so guys are mumbling. I, I remember a couple of years ago, we came into the dock here in Kenora on Lake of the Woods and guys are all mumbling. Oh, it's a tough day. How'd you do? And we were almost embarrassed to say uh, 70, 75, 80 walleye. And again, they are waiting. So the, the mayflies are, are rising up and the ciscos are eating them. And the interesting thing is the ciscos, they don't mind, you know, for sure they're in the thermocline, but uh, as that mayfly is rising up and they're absolutely rising in the billions, in the billions, 150 mayflies per square meter of lake bottom rising up. It's, it's like someone spilled pistachio nuts all over the bottom of the lake and they're now rising up and floating to the surface and anything that wants to eat them can eat them. 100% protein, uh, no bones, no spines, no and everything eats the mayflies, but particularly ciscos. And as they start rising up, muskies are feeding on them, northern pike are feeding on them, walleyes are devouring them. I'll tell you how important the mayfly bite, cisco bite is on relative to walleyes is that every second year, the big hexagenia limbata mayfly hatches, and so many walleyes are concentrated on eating them that they don't cannibalize on younger walleyes, and the biggest year classes almost always occur on the years that we have the best mayfly hatches because the walleyes are eating mayflies and ciscos. And, 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 and the other thing, you don't have to leave the spots that you like to fish. You just need to show the, the fish. Here's the other thing, uh, Taylor, and I, I think your listeners will, will identify with this. I have so many folks. So uh, we get to take out industry folks or whoever, magazines or sponsors or whatever, and we'll go fishing. So let's say you're coming up to fish with me and it's, uh, I don't know, middle of June or middle of July. And let's say it's the middle of July and you arrive in town today and it's flat, calm, 80 degrees, humid, no wind, and you're going to go. And this is what people say when they get in the boat. Wow, this is going to be a tough day. And so what do you, what do they do? They pick up a little spinning rod, six pound test line, put on a little bit bigger than a crappie jig and a minnow that's smaller than your, your baby finger. And they are actively selecting for small, tiny walleyes. So if that was you and me going out today on that bright, sunny, 80, 85 degree day, humidity dripping off our noses, flat, calm. My number one bait that I pick up, number one bait will be a three quarter ounce jig with a six inch swim bait. And we'll go out into 20, 22 feet of water. We'll fire it out on 10 pound test gel spun line on a medium heavy action rod. And there's only one way you can fish that three-quarter ounce, six-inch swim bait 
on 10-pound test, medium heavy action rod, only one way you can fish it, quickly. And so you're now popping it up, you're swimming it, popping it up, swimming it, you're keeping it within a foot of the bottom, and the first time the walleye hits it, you're going to say, oh no, it's not a walleye, it's got to be a big pike. Our best day, I think it was eight, it might have been 12, over 10 pounds, topped off with a 15-pounder on one of the hottest days of the summer. Yeah, man, because I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking about this myself, like, you know, so do you, would you say, this is kind of a personal question, but like for the fishing that you do and all the information that you've gathered, you know, uh, on this topic, like when you're going to bodies of water, you know, like you said, going up to reindeer, what an awesome story where you, that was, those weren't your spots. That was, that's not your home body of water. Um, but it, it, you kind of, if you have the recipe sort of, you know, just some of the, some of the transferable information, you know, that, that it can almost take you to a lot of these different places and you can, as a great starting point, a great strategy to break this down. It's a big fish deal. I mean, if, if, the, if people aren't understanding it already, you know, you said it kind of in the opening statement, like when we talk about the preferred food, it's especially true with the bigger fish. Um, I, I just think that, uh, I just think it, I, I don't want to breeze over the fact that I'm just really taking that away from this, that, you know, it, it, on these bodies of water, when you find the, the type of structure that is the best at that depth range, you know, that the, the Cisco layer and just cruise around on that. I, I think that might be one thing that might be a little bit tricky, especially if people that have memories on certain places, like you might know where some of the best structure is, but if the best piece of that structure isn't in the right depth zone, it might make, you know, you, you there might be something else you should be looking at. Yep. And you, you mentioned uh, reindeer. Here's the funny thing uh, is we were up there for I forget what it was now, four or five days. So we fished lake trout, we fished pike, and we fished for walleyes. So where I'm out with the guide, um, uh, and so we're out fishing, and I put on, very first thing I put on was my go-to bait, three-quarter ounce uh, swim jig, uh, three-quarter ounce head, and a six-inch uh, paddle tail. And we did so well, I swear this is the truth. The guide at the at noon, we actually had shore lunch, and he said, we have a big tournament here at the, it coming up in a few, would you come back and be my partner? <laughs> nice. And, and, and no, I didn't, that's too far to go. But again, we, we are creatures of habit, Taylor. And as soon as you look out, and I, I know this is the case, you look out the window and you see that flat, calm, 85 degree, super hot and humid, you're going to say this is a tough walleye bite. And it is not. It is not. It, it, you go a little bit deeper and throw the right bait. And I talked earlier, walleyes are one of the few fish. A six-inch bait to a 20-inch walleye is actually normal. And when you start talking about 8, 10, 12, 14-pound walleyes, they're eating 9, 10-inch baits. And so what are most walleye anglers putting over the side of the boat? A 2-inch minnow on a, on a 3 eighths ounce or quarter-ounce jig. Yep. You are selecting and targeting smaller walleyes. Yeah. So, so we're self-fulfilling prophets. And this is what I always say at my seminars. If if you look out the window and you see the blue sky and you feel the 85-degree temperature and there's no wind, you're going to say it's a tough bite today, and you're going to do everything in your selecting power to ensure it's a tough day because you're putting on six-pound test line, little tiny jig, little tiny minnow. Well, guess what? It's going to be a tough day for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where, that's really impactful. I mean, because it's, you know, we all got to start getting a little better at fishing outside of our comfort zone until it becomes comfortable, uh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, have, that's right. Develop new comfort zones. I think that these conversations that have, that have real evidence, um, you know, and, and are just, you know, where, where the studies are being done and the information is being produced as fact, um, and, you know, and you just look at what we know, 
I think it's just really, really impactful. And probably a lot of this stuff, you know, really smart people or, or, you know, really adventurous anglers have been doing it for a long, long time. They've been successful with it for a really long time, probably trying to talk about it, probably trying to promote it. Um, but I think that uh, I think these conversations like this with the, you know, these really, really um, impactful stories and, and just all the studies and all the evidence that goes with it, I think, is 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 going to be the gateway drug for so many people. I think it already has been. I mean, I don't know if you maybe feel, you know, as far as different content that you've produced over the years, as far as how where it lands and how it how it uh, uh, influences folks. But uh, I really personally, I appreciate these technical conversations and the, you know, these really science-based conversations myself anyways. I'll give you a good example. And this is the epitome of, I just couldn't believe it when I first saw it. But uh, I'm the, the field editor of In Fisherman magazine. And I'll never forget the time. It's got to be, this is over 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. So Doug Stangy comes up, and Doug is really the pioneer on paddle tails and, and big heavy swim jigs. So Doug comes up, and we go fishing. And, I, and I, it was just the conditions I described earlier. Uh, sunny, calm, hot as can be, uh, perspiration, sweat dripping off our nose. We had an absolutely magnificent day. And I'm thinking, and this is the honest truth, Taylor. Um, I'm thinking when people see this television show, our walleye populations are going to be in trouble. Uh, we were smashing big, big walleyes. I'm talking eight to 10, 12, 14, 13 pounders. Uh, we did it for probably two and a half years and did TV shows. And I'm now thinking... Once these shows go to air, the walleye population is going to be in trouble uh, because everybody's going to start doing this. Can you imagine after they go to air, I'm searching up on the Internet and I'm reading some of the walleye forums and guys are going, oh, it's that damn Stangy talking about. He's just doing that to sell his sponsors. Swim, And I'm going, are you kidding me? I was there, and but if you don't want to do it, I'm glad you don't want to do it. But that's how many it you know it was so it was so away from dropping a little jig and a little minnow over the side of the boat that they didn't want to believe it, so yeah, they didn't. That's what it is. And I was afraid the walleye population was going to be in trouble, and these guys weren't even prepared to try it. This is such a good place to have these kind of kinds of conversations, and I think, yeah, I just think it's a fishing experience. It's it's probably a population of fish that aren't being targeted, so it's like a new fishing opportunity. You know, it's like identifying 100%. a new species. It's like if we were to identify a brand new population of of freshwater fish that we could target. Um, you know, it's 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 very similar to that. It's a it's a it's a fish that they've lived under the radar, or whatever. And you know, we're we're still not. I've said this before. We're still not in North America. We're still not at the peak of what we once were for license sales, uh, you know, really. So when you talk about popul- uh, you know, uh, uh, popularity or, you know, fishing participation, um, there's a lot of people out there fishing and, and maybe in recent history we're, we're climbing back. And so, but I, I don't think that there's an excuse that there's so many more people fishing. And yet now we're realizing that there's more fishing opportunities out there. I think that the, we're realizing more opportunities and and we're spreading ourselves out faster than we're gaining participation. So, yeah. I mean, as far as, um, you know, I just feel like there's just not enough of this stuff out there. And I'd love it. I'd love it if, you know, some more people went out there and got after it and then shared those stories with me again so I could learn from their experiences too, you know. It's like, but I think this is, I think this is going to be a big one for me and the people, uh, you know, in, in and around this area. And, you know, we're talking about some of the capital fisheries you know with cisco populations in them but you know sis we you know cisco and lake herring you know over here in the, on the reservoirs kind of the way we talk to them but you know there's there's uh you know a lot of this information is transferable right i mean you know to maybe 
talk a little bit about that. Maybe that's how we'll kind of close this out a little bit. Obviously, we're, we haven't covered everything, but you know, there's a lot of lot of similarities in in other forage bases as well with lakes that set up a lot like this. Hundred percent. In fact, um, you you raised a good point there. If folks don't recognize the word Cisco, uh, some folks call them lake herring. Other folks call them tulabies, but they're the same fish. Herring, ciscos, uh, tulabies, they're all that they are the same. Uh, scientifically, they're corrigonids and they are ciscos. But uh, call them what you are, they're extremely important. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask you a question. <clears throat> In opening day or the opening week of the season, or the first couple of weeks after the season opens for walleyes. What's the biggest complaint of anglers? What I hear often, all we can catch are the aggressive males. You, you, the the males are so the males are so aggressive. We don't we, we're not seeing. You know the honest truth, uh, Taylor, is the females are not there. They've gone. Uh, it is scientific or, you know, when you look at the tracking work and uh, this will blow your mind, but the females leave quickly. Uh, they come in. Here, here's the other thing. Most anglers believe that the female is going through after she lays her eggs. You hear so many guys talking about, oh, they're recuperating. Uh, the spawn is, is so uh, energy draining. The spawn is way more energy draining to males than it is to females. A female comes in once. She comes in once at night, drops her eggs, and leaves. The males are chasing each other, fighting with each other. Uh, they'll spawn for two, three days. They're, they're aggressive on this. The female just comes in, drops her eggs, and leaves. And uh, most walleye anglers have it wrong. So... Uh, uh, Peter Colby, Dr. Colby's doing his research, tracking them. And this is something I talk about all the time. You always want to be the first angler checking out the next season's location. So opening day, uh, or spring, but then we know if you look at the end fisherman calendar, there's spawn, post-spawn, pre-summer, the pre-summer, peak summer, uh, early fall. You always want to be checking the next location. And the females on opening day, we are looking every year, we're looking at our early summer locations. So m most of the boats are hitting the spawning areas. They're complaining about catching males. They're saying the females are here, but they're just so they're recuperating. They're, it's ridiculous. They're out in deeper water. They're in cooler water where they can maintain their metabolism. The bigger a walleye is, she's trying to devote as much energy as possible to next year's egg development. They're not in the shallow waters chasing perch. They're out on deeper structures eating that meal. I'm prepared to buy you for free the surf and turf tonight. They are out eating Cisco's. Man. Yeah, man. I think I mean, this is – we're covering so much of the information. I know so many people. I mean, I'm going to be emailing and texting the link to this show to so many people that have written in over the last two years, and I finally – you know, we're finally having this conversation. And, you know, it's such a big conversation, too. We could probably sit here and talk for another three hours, and I might have to try to twist your arm to do this again down the road sometime Uh if you're willing, we'll just you know just keep on rolling with the stories because sure. it's such good stuff. Now, I, but... I, I do have to caution one thing. Um, it's never easy. Uh, the, the, the thing that I was mentioning about the spring is, uh, you, you yes, go to all your good summer locations, but in the spring in particular, um, it's never a numbers game. In the summer, it, it's numbers and big fish but in the spring if you if you had if you've caught enough of the 12 14 16 inch males uh and you're looking to get bigger fish by all means 
uh, start looking at those early summer shoals under water points, but pick the ones that are closest to the spawning areas. Uh, and but the females pull out much quicker than most most folks believe. You do you you'll it's never easy. So you're not just going to say, "Well, Pizer said move out to a shoal and I'm going to catch them." You, you got to look. You might look at ten different shoals and you'll only find them on one or two. But that's the fun of fishing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what. That's where. The reward really comes from is uh, is the grind, you know. For yeah. definitely the anglers that appreciate that are the anglers we're trying to talk to, anyways. You know, if you if you're uh, if you're still at that point in time in your career where, you know, you just want the easy bites, um, you know, that's fine too. That's good stuff too. But I like, I you know, I, I the people everybody that we're talking to here is on a journey on a journey to getting better and, and, and enjoys feeling the reward of a good, yeah. a, a, a good, the bite that they were looking for, but uh, not, not until they've paid a little tuition. It just tastes so much better to get that fish in the net after you've uh, really tried to break stuff down and uh, get a little, live in a little bit uh, out of your comfort zone when it comes to the spots you're looking for. It, it feels unorthodox, but, when you when you find that success, you realize just how inside the box it is. You know, I just think yes. that uh, that's just what's been really inspiring me lately in these kind of conversations. But man, I tell you what, Gord, we're we're, we're doing so good for time. I uh, and I don't, definitely don't want to take up your whole afternoon, but we've crushed it. Is on my end. I feel like this is such a fantastic conversation, and I hope that uh, you're satisfied with it. It's uh, this is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, anything uh, that you can promote, uh, people can reach out, find some more of your content, some of the things that you're doing and just uh, if they have any questions on it where they can find you go ahead uh, for sure um if uh, ho- hopefully we hopefully we've got some folks scratching their heads and and at least thinking about hmm, what can i do differently and uh if if anyone has questions or wants to read more we talked a little bit about a couple of those uh, uh herring cisco blogs that i wrote about all you have to do is uh, Google uh, my last name, P-Y-Z-E-R, uh, Gord Pizer, um, and you'll find the stuff I've written for Outdoor Canada magazine. Uh, you'll find the features. You'll find some in fisherman stuff there as well. Um, or, uh, and when you go there, when you go to Outdoor Canada or check on Facebook, uh, again, P-Y-Z-E-R, uh, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram. And if you've got any questions, for, by all means, uh, direct message me. Uh, just send me a message. Say, I, I listened to the podcast and I, you said this and I, I'm a little bit confused about this and ask me the question. By all means, I'll get back to everyone who sends me a, sends me a question. So, no, yeah. I love doing it. The beauty of it for me is we will do a show like this and I anticipate, you know, uh, I, I'm really excited about what the response will be. And everybody's in a, uh, you know, a specific scenario and uh, everybody fishes a different body of water and maybe has a little different perspective or they receive the information differently. And that's kind of the beauty of it is uh, yeah. and then and, and hearing about everybody's uh, specific situation you know where they're at things that they're trying things they have questions about I just I don't know I just I love all that stuff they're great conversations and yeah I couldn't I couldn't uh, promote that anymore if anybody has any questions whatsoever definitely uh, uh, reach out um, to you you know the way you said it there we'll just research the last name and but yeah don't hesitate to subscribe to anything uh, that you know as far as the stuff that uh, that you're putting out Gord is just fantastic Fantastic, and that's really what kind of brought us together. Is because you you know you put out a couple of uh, articles recently, and yeah, I just my inbox just started loading up with your name. It's like you got to get this guy on to talk about this stuff, and it was perfect, perfect timing for me, anyways. But well, yeah, you know the other thing, uh, Taylor, is I got nothing to sell. I don't care what rod you use. I don't care what lure you use. What sonar? What boat? I got nothing to sell. Um, but I, I'll share with you what I have found that works and I'll share with you some good science. If you don't like it, don't try it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, take it or leave it. But man, I feel like you've been <laughs> in the industry long enough. You've been in the industry long enough. I'm gonna have a hard time. Uh, I'm gonna have a hard time not putting a lot of this stuff on the front page of my uh, fishing diary. Because <laughs> <laughs> this stuff is. Uh, I can't wait to get out. I I love. Uh, you know, like I was. You know, mentioning the bo- the water bodies that we mess with around here a lot more. But even, you know, just getting up into Canada as well, the fishing that we've done up there. But, you know, gosh, the, this Cisco conversation or just, you know, the pelagic uh, bait fish conversation, obviously it's a, it's 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 been since forever with the walleyes over on the Great Lakes. But, uh, you know, over in these western reservoirs, it's, um, it's a fun learning curve because a lot of this stuff is... Uh, you know, either they're non-native and they've been introduced, so we're just we're just kind of figuring it out, you know, as we go. Even you know, and and uh, and that's kind of the fun of it too. There's still a lot of really great pioneer pioneering going on in the fishing industry, where you know a lot of us probably you know maybe overvalue what we think we know about fishing all the time and it's like somebody like you that's been in the industry since forever and you're just constantly learning and trying these new things and going to a brand new water body with a a strategy um you know that uh looking out the window at tough conditions for anybody and your mouth is watering i mean that just makes my mouth water and i want to go fish a tough day and make it a good day and figure put the puzzle together like that but uh yeah man well Once again, this podcast is brought to you by the North Dakota Game and Fish. In the 2023 fishing season, the state of North Dakota is putting on the 2023 Sport Fish Challenge, a challenge to catch a multi-species bluegill, walleye, bass, and trout. Take a picture of each of those species and enter to the Game and Fish website, gf.nd.gov backslash fish hyphen challenge. That link is in the description if you didn't catch all that. Anglers that complete the challenge are going to win a decal and a bunch of bragging rights. The decal they can display anywhere that they want to proudly. Obviously, it would look fantastic on tackle boxes, coolers, water bottles, lunchbox, and bait bucket. Anything that uh, people are going to see so that they can brag about it. Again, the link is in the description of this podcast.